See, what you're doing with that, when you're saying you want to uh, be gladdened, you're actually saying, child inside, you're not good enough yet. You need to have joy. You're a piece of crap right now. And there's the child, oh, I don't feel the joy, I don't feel the joy. All right, well, <laughs> with that kind of dialogue language going on, of course, we're not going to feel it. So good to see you again, Julian. And uh, you you had uh, reported that you had been doing a bit of a, an online course. That's right. Yeah, I did. And, a, and that you got some questions about that. And you also mentioned something about uh, uh, that gladdening the mind was work to do that you were resisting doing. Yeah. Or how did you phrase it? That uh, it it felt forceful, and I had trouble with with that. And sometimes it seemed like um, I was curious as to whether gladdening the mind is more of a letting go or more of a fostering the good emotions. Okay. Uh, because when I've tried to take the the first the fostering or forcing the good emotions sometimes it's been a little bit difficult for me all right we can start off with uh the overall point that it's a matter of attitude now let's get into it a little bit how can we develop right attitude how can we develop sama sankapa the question has to do with basically uh, letting go of the sila bhatta paramasa, that we are attached to rites, rules, rituals, and ways of doing things, and we do that for our whole lives, that we'll hear something that we think is a good idea or is a rule to be followed, and so then we'll make it a rule in our own mind. We'll pick it up and then we'll play the old tapes. Okay, we continue to do that our whole lives. And that uh, the practice of Anapanasati means that we have to make a slight change to that. Another way of talking about it is, is that when we tell ourselves you should be gladdened up or that this is the practice and you want to do it and you resent doing it, that's exactly the same dialogue that is played out in every human being's mind throughout the day, all day long. And that is a dialogue between the parent and the child. You see, uh, basically when you're talking about gladdening the mind, it's something that you should do. And then any things that you tell yourself that you should do, there's naturally going to be an internal rebellion against doing what you should do. This is the dialogue between the parent ego state and the child ego state, or what Sigmund Freud called between the ego, super, excuse me, super ego and the id. All right. And the, the super ego or this parent ego state is uh, a set of rights, rules, rituals, laws, would, shoulds, coulds, everything that we've heard from our parents is quite broad. Um, a lot of people think that the parent ego state is kind of tiny 
And also they look at Silabata Paramasa and say, oh, there's not much to it because I don't like many of the rules anyway. But they don't realize that in fact, that's basically the internal speech or the internal dialogue. Everything that you say to yourself is basically giving marching orders. That's especially true when we consider it that it's critical thought. Critical thought of, I like this, I don't like that, I want this to be better. This work needs to be done, all of that kind of stuff. And to now, on top of all of that stuff, marching orders and everything we've told ourselves that we've got to do for so many years, we had now a new one. You must relax. Or you must gladden the mind. Right? So here's what I mean about an attitude change is that we've got to see uh, that change that cutting off this critical thought, including critical thoughts of you must uh, gladden the mind is is basically what we need to do. This is the the way of looking at wholesome thoughts versus unwholesome thoughts. Telling yourself you ought to relax, telling yourself you ought to feel good, telling yourself you ought to gladden the mind is just more marching orders. And the child is, is against marching orders. It's almost like inertia in the sense that if we're not doing anything, whatever we're doing right now, which is nothing much, is the way to go. For instance, the best way for a car is while it's sitting is to just sit. But once it's out on the road rolling, now the tendency is to continue to roll. This is what we mean by inertia. Uh, it doesn't mean that things want to stop. It means that they tend to keep going the way that they're going. So we have to find a way of pulling this newly found brilliant information and take it away from the parent, and give it to the child as a toy to play with. It cannot be a, um, a job to do in order to get a reward. Rather, it is got to be the reward itself. The gladdening of the mind is actually the reward for the child. Not that he's got to do anything. Okay. But that um, that's the whole point is when we hear things like Anapanasati, the natural tendency for an ordinary mind is just to make that a rule. Oh, it sounds really good. Sounds like we ought to do that. Therefore, we should do that. The better way of practicing is, is to check how good this is right now. Letting things be good right now. Saying things that indicate that things are already good right now, rather than making it immediately in the future of you should, you ought to. It's like taking a deep breath is so much more re refreshing then telling ourselves you ought to take a deep breath and then not doing it.
So whatever we can do for getting the motivation going, if that's the word, in fact, that may not be the right word because motivation means that we've got to move from here to go there in order to do something. That's what they mean by motion or motivate. You got to get up and get going or whatever like that to where in fact, this is not motivation like you want to meditate or the uh, you want to gladden the mind. But rather, this is um, a practice to actually do that in the present moment. Okay, so that means that when you remember, you can just gladden up. You can smile, give yourself a little humor. Tell yourself a little joke like, oh, wow, I've seen this before. Well, I've been resistant to happiness before when in fact I could have just been happy instead. And so these are the kind of thoughts that you can have to remember that you have to take the practice of meditation out of the critical parent. Ego state and put it into uh, the position of it being a gift for the child, for the very natural part of you. To give yourself joy, to give yourself pleasure rather than telling yourself you ought to have joy, you ought to have pleasure. So it is a matter of changing our attitude or changing our uh, mind state from the state of the critical parent into the state of the joyous child. How can you make that change? One of the ways that you can do it is with uh, a good statement to start off with, well, I don't have to. Blah, 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 blah. An example of that is, well, I don't even have to gladden my mind. Wow, what a relief. <laughs> that's a funny one. <laughs> well, that's a whole lot better way of doing it than telling yourself, you ought to gladden your mind. No, I don't want to. You ought to gladden your mind. No, I don't want to. Yeah. But that no, I don't want to is almost always expressed as a feeling or an emotion, not in dialogue or not in discursive thinking, but the you want to feel joy, you want to have gladness, that is discursive thinking. Yeah, I think uh, the, the friction, the difficulties come from, or at least in my mind, it doesn't feel like it's um, that I don't want to, but it's that it just seems hard. I go, okay, glad in the mind, suka. And then it just, the mind's kind of hard to grasp and just force it in a certain direction, you know? Grasp. That's an interesting one. <laughs> Does this grasping look restful and peaceful? No. How about this? Yes. Okay. So again, it's a mental attitude, the grasping after it, like that you should do it or that you need to do it and, and that you're feeling unfulfilled, um, almost as if it were attainment that we don't know what to do. 
and and it's basically a 180. It's from out there grasping into never mind. I don't need that. Everything's all right anyway. I don't even have to gladden my mind. Isn't that a relief? But you see, I don't even have to gladden my mind that I, uh, what a relief. That's a statement of gladdening the mind. You ought to gladden the mind is not. That's a critical thought. And now I know that this is kind of subtle, but you can tell that it really does change the way uh, that you practice from an actual practice that gains value. And it takes us back into the world that we've been living in all along anyway. Which is just the, the, uh, the, the, the interchange between the parent of going around doing what you're told to do. Uh, said to a child who's reluctant to do it. So we have to talk ourselves into things. All right. This dialogue. That we're talking about between the parent and the child, this dialogue is what needs to be seen. And uh, recognizing that it comes up, it's a Nietzsche too. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. And it arises and then it passes away. And part of your job is to watch that whole thing pass away. Once you see it, you're basically saying goodbye to this dialogue between the parent and the child. If you ought to do this and you ought to do that. And then that goodbye kiss. Is what a relief to see that dialogue go. And we can think of then of, of nurturing thoughts. The way that a mother nurtures a baby, a tender infant. And the mother does not have any expectations. The mother of a tender infant doesn't come into that tender infant and says, you ought to gladden your mind. What does she do instead? Goo goo gaga, goo goo gaga. Okay, so we need to get into that child ego state, just like the mom will get into the child ego state and do goo goo gaga and comes out of that parent ego state in the sense of you ought to you ought to buck up, baby. You ought to cheer up because babies are not going to cheer up when they're told to cheer up. Infants of even the, the child ego state of the adult doesn't cheer up because he's told to cheer up. All right, so changing that frame of reference of you want to do it like this and and bringing it into nurturing really wholesome thoughts is what the practice is and what that means now is the relinquishment or the letting go is of the critical thinking because those are the unwholesome thoughts So would you say that this is like changing the attitude from, um, I guess, a, a parent, a strict parent to a child, changing it from that to just a friend? And that's how we we think of how I how I relate to my mind. Yes, precisely. Okay. That's a really excellent word to use. I haven't used it yet, but I was going to. And that is to be make friends with ourselves. 
that instead of having this one up, one down relation within our own mind, there's that same up down relationship that we've had when we were born, starting with parents, teachers, uncles, grandparents, people on the street, older kids. And so we get in the habit of establishing one up, one down relationships. But children also establish friendship relationships. When kids are playing with kids their own age, and we have a lot of kids here uh, during during COVID, the schools are out, uh, but we've got neighbor kids and also uh, uh, a mom brings her two kids over uh, to play with the kids that are here too. So sometimes we have three or four kids in the house and you can hear them yelling and laughing and screaming and not one of them is telling the other one, you ought to go do something. Not one of them is telling you they're, they're playing together. Okay. So they're friends. And in friends, it's not, it's not a matter of one up and one down or one up and one down or equal. It's a matter that when you're friends, you're not making any comparisons. So that's one of the ways of we looking at uh, the correct practice of Anapanasati is also to relinquish trying to get anything out of Anapanasati. Because okay. that wanting something out of it is coming out of that parent ego state, that the child is there just to enjoy what we do have. And so basically, uh, we can say what a relief it is to be out of that hindering critical mind. That restless mind, that mind that has grasping and clinging and liking and not liking and jobs to do and all of that world uh, that Byrne has called the superego. This is what <clears throat> the Buddha refers to in several regards. One of them is hindrances. And another one, he talks about it in the sense of relinquishing all the rules that we've given ourselves. Because when we're wolf falling, we're not feeling good. And so all of these rules with the Sila Bhatta Paramasa itself, not only is a fetter in one's life over a long period of time, but it is also the hindrance that keeps popping up in the moment. That it manifests itself over a long period of time, but it only manifests itself in this present moment. Okay. And so there you are sitting on the floor telling yourself, you want to meditate. Telling yourself you ought to gladden the mind. Well, that's out of the same critical mindset that you have been doing it much of your whole life out of that one up, one down position. And get yourself into being really friendly with yourself. Hey, let's make this a toy. This is a game to play. This is not a, uh, a job to do. We're not expecting any results for the future. We're expecting only the results of enjoying the moment right now. That makes a lot of sense. And I love that explanation. <laughs> it's very interesting that way, that it's a change of attitude. And I, I guess that this probably goes for this probably goes for other things besides Anapanasati too, right? This is probably 
maybe the right attitude to have with things in life in general. Mm-hmm. Yes. That but not fact, as a rule, but not as, as a, a rule, but as a, a moment of play, a moment of joy. Okay, when we start having more and more moments of play and more and more moments of joy, that does not make us completely unproductive. In some cases, it makes us even more productive than the guy who's struggling with something. Did we get too narrow, too focused, not see outside the box, but when we're playing, there's no boxes. There's hidey holes and forts and all kinds of things, but there's no boxes. But the adult sees everything in categorizations or or boxes or ways of frames of reference, ways of looking at things. And so here what we're inviting to do is to take those boundaries that were set up by the critical mind and play with them. Allow everything to be an interesting toy to play with. Aha, I caught you, Myra. Yes, making friends with oneself, making friends between the parent and the child and the adult. That friendship, in fact, is, in fact, the whole point of the Eightfold Noble Path. This is very clear when the Buddha starts the Sutta number 117, the Great Forty. When he says, listen closely, folks, didn't call them folks, called them bhikkhus. Listen closely, bhikkhus. I will teach you right unification of mind with its supports and results or uh, uh, supports and features. Now, basically what supports the eightfold, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the right unification of mind are right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude. Those are the supports. When we have those skills developed and bring them together, the mind is unified. And then the features of the unified mind is high quality mindset where the mind will uh, will not go and do things that will pull the mind out of that noble space. Which means then that uh, one's right speech, right action and right livelihood are actually the result of correct practice. But the way that it's taught in Buddhism from children, I mean, the first thing that happens um, in a meditation retreat is run by monks. Or what happens at every Buddha day is it throws up. The last thing I heard you say was um, on the meditation treat or on the Buddha day. The first thing that happens is. Okay, the first thing that happens is that they do the uh, ceremonies called the triple gem, taking refuge into the Buddha, and also the precepts. Now, this is done uh, by ordinary people for ordinary people. And the mistake that is made is, is that they assume that the practice of the Triple Gem and the practice of Sila uh, is part of the practice. 
But the reality of it is, is that if the practice that the Buddha recommends is done correctly, then one's morality or sila is the natural outcome of correct practice, not the cause or not deep correct practice. In other words, if your mind is straight, if you don't want anything, then you're unlikely to go take something. If your mind is not straight and you really want something, now you have to have an internal dialogue. Are you going to steal that or not? But if you don't want it, you got no trouble from the beginning. This is why the uh, the unification of mind is so important. And you can also see that this unification of mind that we're talking about can be seen also in the sense of the unification of mind between the parent, the adult, and the child, or these three ego states that Byrne has uh, and Freud were able to detect, is, is that we are a crowd inside, that we do try to protect things. An example of that is when someone does wrongdoing, their own parent ego state says, you're not supposed to do that. But now that you have done it, we don't want anybody to know that you're doing it, that you've done it, because you're not supposed to do it. Therefore, we hide what we've done. We lie about it, etc. And what that does is that breaks the mind into a disunity or another way of saying it. No, it was already broken into disunity. That's why the lie was able to occur. If the mind had been unified, there would have been uh, no reason to try to hide the wrongdoing, because if the wrongdoing de uh, defines dukkha or sets up dukkha, then we we want to be finished with that. All right. So if I see that I've had wrongdoing, then I want to repair that wrongdoing. And so we don't try to hide it or cover it up. So these are the kinds of things that we can look at. Um, now, another point about it is, is that once the mind uh, becomes unified, uh, let us say often enough, part of the attitude that's changing is the attitude of actually really taking refuge, not doing it as a ceremony. But when we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, by taking refuge in the Buddha, that means that we've been around enough people who have uh, the ability to clean out their mind. And so you know that you can do it because you can see that other people can do it. Then we have the Dhamma, and that is that we take refuge in the Dhamma because we can see that correct practice of meditation rather than having a dialogue between the parent and the child, but actually generating joy, we can feel joy. And we begin to recognize that the Dhamma actually works. And because of that, we can take refuge in a system that actually works, as opposed to a ceremony about taking refuge. And then the third one naturally is the Sangha, and that's the one that we're working on, and that is to get enough people together who are practicing correctly so that they can support each other and practice friendship among one another rather than the normal world of just competing. In other words, we can go back and become kids again and have real friends again and just play with our friends rather than 
becoming adults uh, stuck in competition between our friends. So in that regard, the Sangha now, we take begin to take refuge in the fact that my friends and my collection of friends is part of the practice of, of the Buddha. So we have all three, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Now, this is actually much more uh, available and able to be seen in Asia or in Asian temples in the United States. But the Westerners, for some reason, we don't have that ability to just accept people the way that they are. Uh, a lot of Westerners, when they be, if they become monks, when they become monks, or sometimes before they become monks, what do they start doing? They start criticizing the monks they see. And then if they join, then they continue to be critical. And that's the whole point about joining the Sangha is, is that we leave our criticism for other monks at the door. That's the point about being the Sangha is, is that this is a collection of friends. We're here to mutually support each other, not to compete with each other. And so the Sangha, as uh, uh, as part of that triple gem, is where we really take refuge. That we know that we can be friends. Uh, and so this is actually a development. This is a change of attitude that comes about through correct practice not a set of rules, thou shalt be friendly at the what. And so it's a different kind of uh, way of doing it. It comes not from the uh, from the super ego, not from mommy telling little Johnny, you've got to go be friends with these people. But rather Johnny is not even listening to mom because he's, he's uh, busy running and screaming towards his friends with great joy. <clears throat> So this is the way that we look at it is, is that we bring our mind out of that parent critical ego state into a nurturing ego state so that we can give our uh, child inside absolute permission to be okay right now. See what you're doing with that when you're saying you want to uh, be gladdened, you're actually saying child inside, you're not good enough yet. You need to have joy. You're a piece of crap right now. And there's the child. Oh, I don't feel the joy. I don't feel the joy. All right. Well, it, with that kind of dialogue language going on, of course, we're not going to feel it. And so this is the whole quality about understanding what is uh, a hindrance or what are unwholesome thoughts. Telling yourself you want to have joy is an unwholesome thought. Having the thought of, wow, I see that thought and I don't have to do that. I can just relax. All right, so that's the change, a very small change in the way that we look at it uh, so that we don't have to resist the, the correct practice, but we're eager for it. We could also say that that eagerness is part of the skill set that is to be developed. That in the, a, a group, in one, one sutta, the Buddha has a group of seven knowledges that lead us from uh, absolute ordinary worldling person to the first step of, of the noble path right through 
<clears throat> and along the way in step five and six and especially and then in the culmination absolutely in step seven is the idea of joy of uh, eagerness enthusiasm that we can begin to see that when we gain the ad the attitude of enthusiasm being enthusiastic for the correct practice makes right effort a lot easier in the beginning, the students don't have much enthusiasm for the practice, and so they have to put in the right effort to do it. Well, it's not going to be the right effort to do it if that effort is spawned from critical thinking of you should do it. But rather, it's got to be done from the invitation of this is nice. Here, little Johnny, have a piece of apple. Rather than you ought to eat this apple. It makes sense. It's quite a shift for me in many respects. Yes, but it is. It is a shift. It's subtle, but it is quite a shift. And it will be the shift from failure into uh, success. Yeah. Operating through success, noticing success, wanting the success not in the sense of wanting to get to success two or three breaths or two or three or five minutes from now, but allowing yourself to feel successful with this breath. This is good enough. So you go and practice that. This is just, we'll save this talk on just one point and not veer too far away from it and just stay with this one thing that all right so to, to get yourself into a state of actually liking it doesn't work by telling yourself you ought to like it because the child rebels against ought to's and try a bit of goo goo gaga with yourself yeah, Google Gaga meditation, the classic. Google <laughs> Gaga meditation. Wow, this feels so good. <laughs> Which sutta is that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, it's in the suttas that I'm using. And um, one would be uh, sutta number 19, where he's talking about the uh, uh, one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. Uh, but interesting enough, uh, the, the Buddha does talk about it in general senses, in the sense of unwholesome thoughts would be thoughts of criticism, thoughts of wanting, thoughts of wanting to get away from greed and ill will, and also thoughts of harmfulness. Uh, but he means it in great generalities like that, where we're getting down to absolutely specific ways of, of thinking and seeing that that kind of thought right there is unwholesome. And so the students begin to understand more and more clearly about what are wholesome and unwholesome thoughts, because we've got a fairly good definition of it in a broad sense. We just need to start applying it to the individual thought processes that we have. And this critical thinking uh, that we have about you ought to feel good or you ought to meditate is actually just an unwholesome thought about 
now is not good enough. If you'd go meditate, things would get better. And that's uncritical. Uh, that's more criticism. A, a more wholesome thing we're saying is, is that, hey, man, everything's OK right now. You don't have to meditate. The Zen are actually quite clear with that in the sense of you're already enlightened. What do you want? Just sit here. You're already enlightened. So getting us out of that wanting state. Out of wanting joy and and uh, speaking about wanting it from that critical parent of you ought to feel joy. Can be turned around. Completely. By saying it's okay to just relax. Whatever joy that you do feel, whatever gladdening that you do have. Allow that to actually work. Yeah, this is good. But the critical mind says, well, it is good, but I want more. Well, now we're practicing wanting more. We've already been excellent at wanting more. What we need to do now instead is practicing of being satisfied with what little bit of satisfaction we do have. But practice satisfaction practice this is good enough this is fine no place to go and nothing to do and everything just hunky-dory right thank you so do you have any questions about this i think that we've gotten this topic pretty well covered yeah i don't oh. think i do this is super relevant to me because um even when I find myself thinking about the uh, the Dhamma, which is supposed to be wholesome, I think about it often in this terp, this type of like, oh, you ought to, you ought to type of way, and it ends up being not wholesome. And that was confusing for me. Excellent. Excellent. So it's not a matter of when you were talking about re uh, letting go or relinquishment. Uh, we just need to change that focus just a little bit. It's the critical mind state. Mm -hmm. that needs to be relinquished, to be able to see those unwholesome thoughts and relinquish those. When you just stop telling yourself you ought to feel good, then you'll start to feel good. But so long as you're telling yourself you ought to feel good, you won't. All right. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, Damarato. Excellent, Julian. We'll see you later. I'll see you later. Okay. Bye-bye.